Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble. Each episode follows a performer's unique journey to the Great White Way. This is episode 96, and my guest is John Andrew Morrison. Hello. I'm so excited because I'm sitting here with John Andrew Morrison. Hello. Hello. Uh, Welcome to Broadway's Backbone. Oh my God, I'm so... So very excited! I've listened to your podcast, and now I'm going to be on. I know. I'm so excited because the week that we scheduled this, we had to reschedule because you were nominated for a Tony Award for a show called Strange Loot. Yeah. And then your show won the Tony Award for Best Musical, which is so so exciting. So um, we might have some younger listeners or people who don't know about Strange Loot. Mm -hmm. So before we get into it later in the episode, give me like a synopsis of what you think is the heart of your show. Well, so the show is basically about a young overweight black gay man who is trying to write a musical about a young overweight black gay man who's writing a musical about a young overweight black gay man (laughs) and he's struggling with um, issues of his sexuality of his self-loathing his religious upbringing of guilt and shame and also trying to be a great artist with all of that And so it is hilarious, it is heartbreaking, it runs the whole gamut because it's trying to look at a young man's humanity at a a particular time in his life. And, And it's all centered around his 26th birthday. So his 26th birthday is coming up and, you know, he's having this quarter life crisis of who am I, what do I want to be, am I going to be able to do it? It it succeeds. Some of those qualities you said there, right there, I am none of. (laughs) And I related to it because there are other qualities that may not be the top ones that I completely relate to. Yeah, well, I mean, so the thing that's been very interesting about the show is it's very specific and it's very honest. And so because it's very specific and it's very honest, it becomes very universal, right? So people can go, well, I've dealt with my self-loathing and my negative self-talk or the voices in my head that go, no, you can't, you're not good enough, this isn't for you. Like, we've all dealt with that. Whether you're black, you're gay, you're straight. And so when I step out from the show almost every time, people come up to me and go, oh my gosh, that's my mom, or that's my aunt, or oh, I understood that so specifically, or I have this negative self-talk, or I have this whole fear about my finances and da 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 da. Yeah. So everyone's had a bad day, or you know, if you haven't, you probably will yes. at some point in time. <laughs> Especially if you're an artist, being vulnerable and trying to put something out to the world is hard, and this show tackles all of that. So even though it's a very specific body that the show is pinned on, it's very universal in its themes. I love that. I mean, I even really related to the the shame of religion, which there's so many different religions that do that and there's so many that don't. Because it takes years to deal with some of those issues. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Also, you know, the religion is one thing, but also people have parents. I think there's a a desire that everybody's relationship with their parents is hunky-dory and wonderful and all great and all roses and and candy but as we know it's usually much more complicated than that because yeah. parents are just people yeah and um they have their own 
strange loops that they're in that are bucking up against us trying to figure out what the heck our strange loops are yeah. you know the religious part the family part a lot of people relate to it the content is there to walk out moved yeah so. absolutely so before the awards Tony nominee was attached to your mm-hmm. name forever <laughs> I just love saying that <laughs> where are you from and how did you get started so I am from Kingston Jamaica so I always loved theater from the time I was very, very young, I used to spend summers in New York at my Aunt Claudia's house in Elmhurst, Queens. My, I have a big family, so both of my parents come from, they're the second of nine, both on my mom's side and my dad's side. I also now have, like, cousins who are, like, almost 20 years older than me and almost 20 years younger than me. And so when I was a youngin in New York, what would happen is my Aunt Claudia would be like, please get all of these kids out of my house. And so the older ones who were then teenagers, because I literally had cousins who were 10, even 15 years older than me when I was like 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, would like take us into Manhattan. And at the time in Manhattan, like you could get two first for Broadway shows and stuff like that. And a Broadway show was not as expensive as it is now. And so we'd go see Broadway shows. And so as a young kid, I saw, I remember falling asleep in The Wiz because (laughs) I was like four. Oh, but seeing The Wiz at four, oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, I wish I, I wish I remembered it more. Like I fell asleep and I remember when the Flying Monkeys came on because they were like on motorcycles or something like that. And I remember there was this loud thing and I wanted one and then (laughs) fell back to sleep. So I wish I could have remembered it more. But I saw Annie, I remember seeing Annie, I remember seeing the tap dance kid, I remember seeing Lacage. And my mom was like, oh my God, what did I just take my son to see? And then the one that really like did it for me was Dreamgirls. And like, that was like, I didn't want to see it because it's like, it's girls. And I was like, maybe like, I don't know. I was young. I was like maybe 10, 11, 12 around there, something like that. And I just was like, I don't know. I don't want to. You know, it starts with that drum beat. And from the minute it started, I just was like, what is this? And just kind of like fell in love with that show. And the energy and the response from the audience, what, like, people went nuts for it. Just that energy in that space has that, oh, I want to be able to do this. Yeah. You know, I didn't really know how I was going to do it. Like, in Kingston, Jamaica, there wasn't a lot of opportunities, and I also didn't have a dad that wanted a son Mm -hmm. who was, like, going to be a performer. And so there weren't many, many opportunities But in high school, I went to this very strange high school in Jamaica, which was like an international school. And in fifth form, which is like, I'm trying to think what grade that is here, but it's towards the end of high school, a young man named Martin Stevenson came to our school and him and his family were involved with a thing called the Jamaica Musical Theatre Company. He was like, hey, we're doing Greece and we need people to be crew. And where he lived, my house was on the way from his house to the theater. And so he's like, I'll pick you up. And so, um, <laughs> you know, I was like, okay. So my mom was like, well, I don't have to drive you anywhere. That's fine. Go do it. Get out of the house. And so I was about 15 or 16. And the first thing I did was I ran crew for Jamaica Musical Theatre Company under production of Grease and fell in love with 
all of the people and and then the next year they're like we're doing the wizard of oz you should come and audition and, and so i did and i played the wizard and then after that i moved to the states to go to college and you know my intention was to study law oh i never made it to a law class no i guess, I, I guess, I, I guess not i guess not did you end up in school um yeah so um when i went to brandeis um i went to brandeis for undergrad my intention was like pre-law as i said the freshman week you know there's like this whole week on campus where it's just like the new students in the student center there was like a sign up for the theater department's musical working and so i went to the audition and i got cast so i found myself like learning on the job as it were you know and like learning no music theory no oh, yeah. dance no none of that the next thing i know i was in this rehearsal for this thing and there was a woman in the who was associated with the with the production her name was claudia jones she said hey i can teach you how to sing and so she became my first voice teacher, and she did. She taught me how to sing. How many years it seemed like you struggled in a lot in New York City? And you, uh, even when I met you, you were out of the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I was in corporate America for a long time. So, like, you know, I did Brandeis. I did my undergraduate degree. And I was a pretty good performer. And, like, you know, and, and then I started to do... The great thing about going to school and, like, working in a place like Boston is it's a small community. And so I started working professionally in Boston, and I think it was like my junior year, I worked at Speakeasy Stage, which is like a professional theater company, and it was starting then. Now it's like Speakeasy is like a big established like mucka in Boston. <laughs> but like I think when I, when I worked there, it was like maybe their first or second year. It was their second year. It was. It was their second year of being in existence. And by the time I, I graduated Brandeis, I graduated like that Sunday, and I think that Tuesday... I was in rehearsals for a musical at ART, and I was in the ensemble of this of this show. And I met this great man named Tommy Dara, who um, was kind of like the first mentor, was the first person who kind of like took me under his wing and was like, "You got something, kid, but you need you need some more. You need." some more training and how did you handle that i mean i kind of knew I, I i knew that what he was saying was true okay because you know here i was in a room with people who were like incredibly bold and brilliant and i was like i don't know how they're doing what they're doing mm. and like that was clear that i didn't know how they were doing what they were doing but what they were doing was thrilling and exciting. And I could do something and I could make a choice and I could, you know, I wasn't, I was a, I was a good performer, but like yeah. I didn't know how to act, right? right. Like okay. I, yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't have the full skill set to be a really good actor. And yet. so, yet, yet. And so when he said that, I was like, you're probably right. And he was associated with the ART program, but the guy who was directing the show, Andre Belgrader, he was teaching at UCSD. And that season at ART, he literally brought like, I think it was four or five students who had just graduated from UCSD to work at ART that season. And they were all like great and very, very individual and very singular. And as like, they didn't all look or mm. act the same, they, but, but they were all 
very in their bodies and da 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 da. And so I, I kind of fell in love with all of them and was like, well, I think I might want to go to that program. Mm. And so this man, Tommy Dara, he helped me with my audition. And I remember at the time I, I applied to NYU, I applied to Yale, and I applied to UCSD. And it was like the universe kind of was like, well, you're not going to Yale. Because <laughs> I had my, my Yale audition, but I was working at ART at the time. And ART was like, no, you can't go to this audition. <laughs> like, like, yeah, exactly. But it's my, it's my audition for Yale. It's yeah. like, Sorry. Yeah. It wasn't the world of doing a self-tape, yeah. right? Like, I yeah. mean, that wasn't happening. So kind of like the Yale thing was like, okay. And I, and I auditioned for NYU and I, and I got called back and I got put on the waiting list. And I walked into the UCSD audition and I remember the guy who was running it. <laughs> I literally walked in and I'm like, hi, I'm John Andrew Morrison. And he's like, I know, I've gotten five calls about you. <laughs> well, that's a good thing, like, oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> because apparently the, the actress who were in the thing at ART all called him and they're like, you have to, like... Oh, that's... Yeah. That so, is great. So that was like really lovely and so i auditioned and then i went back for the afternoon callback and they offered me a spot right then and there in san diego in san diego which is where i'm from yeah 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 and i live right now in ilmhurst which are like or jackson heights which is like obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. you know so two places that are like my favorites that's so oh, funny so you went to san diego yeah i mean and and look after boston san diego was delicious and oh. also san diego was free and warmer and warm <laughs> the last year i was in boston was they had a nor'easter and we had like something like 30 inches of snow and for like a month we were like walking in like pathways on the sidewalk and there was like there, there was so much snow you could not see the road it That's was a big like, change from the boy in jamaica oh my god it was <laughs> ridiculous i was like I mean, I'd become used to snow and stuff, but like, I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, Those walls of snow were like, like you're like, how is, and you're like, there's a car under yeah, there stuck somewhere? Yeah, there's cars underneath there. I mean, and it was like weeks of like, people not being able to dig that out or like, use it. I mean, it was, it was, yeah. <laughs> so, um, San Diego was free. And I remember it probably was like about a week before I was set to move to San Diego, I got like the notice from NYU going, hey, you can come. And I was like, not for this price. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, so it kind of was like the universe decided and, and UCSD was great. I mean, it was, you know, associated with the La Jolla Playhouse and I really, I learned how to act there, you know? Yeah. I learned how to act. I learned, I learned technique. I learned how to break my script down. I learned how to graph. I learned the techniques of acting and like the stuff that I learned there and even stuff that I learned at Brandeis I still use to this day. I still use to this day. Wow. Then after that, I, you know, I, I had probably one of the most disastrous showcase seasons of any human being. We showcased in New York and in L.A., and at the time, the schools showcased together. So we showcased with Yale. And like the year before, it was Yale, NYU, and UCSD would showcase together. But this year, it was just Yale and us. And we showcased together in LA. 
We didn't in New York. In New York, we did our own, but in LA, we showcased with, with Yale. And at the time, the thing was, you, you had your stack of 50 headshots and you brought them to the thing. <laughs> and people would take the headshots you want, um, both in New York and in LA. I literally left with my stack of 50 oh. headshots. You people know, don't realize that that stuff happens to us all the time. Oh my God. It's devastating. Devastating. It's devastating. The thing that was like really disheartening was, you know, I went to like a big fancy grad school, like, yeah. you know, I'm associated with La Jolla Playhouse and I'm like working at La Jolla Playhouse and like, you know, they're doing big fancy musicals. You're kind of hoping that like you're walking out of there better than you're leaving. And I was walking out of there better than I was leaving as a better actor. But I remember when I lived in Boston, I used to like drive down to New York and wait in the non-equity line and all day to like hope and see if he yeah. would like get into to audition for something. And here I was coming back to New York with no equity card. And, you know, says so that, oh, my God, I'm going to have to like, I'm going to have to do that again. You know, no agent, no equity card. And so I landed in New York eager, but completely desperate and completely feeling dejected with like, classmates of mine making their Broadway debuts yes. and, you know, working with some of the best agencies in town and, like, I could not, I couldn't get in anywhere. Yeah. And I guess you could, like, feel, like, fate in the sense of, like, you were supposed to make your Broadway debut years to come that you don't know, but when you're yeah. young in time and you don't realize that, like, the role that's going to change your life, the show yeah. that's going to change your life is years away. You're yeah. just a 25-year-old dejected because you're told you're not good enough to do what you just trained to do. You know, it's just yeah, all these yeah. things. Well, also, it's like a different thing about you're in these institutions and, like, you get to do everything, right? You get to play all kinds of parts. You get to do all kinds of things. Or you're working in a smaller market like Boston and you get to have these opportunities because it's a smaller, limited talent pool. But then you get to the city and they're like, no, we don't want a black actor playing this part because that's not what we think that is. Or what was happening a lot then, what they wanted from their black actors was to be thugs or to be mm. a lot of the things that my big body that I walked into an audition, they wanted me to be a full base, which I'm not. And they wanted me to be a thug. They wanted me to have a certain amount of grit and da 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 That was just not my energy. Yeah. You know? And also, I was gay. And, like, so I would, like... At the time, I mean, there was no, like, Me Too era or Me Too thing going on like casting directors would say horrible things to your oh. face they would say things well can you be blacker you're not really black enough or like they'd say yeah. things like mm. oh I, your handbag is falling out of your mouth when you talk or like casting directors would say stuff like that all oh the gosh. time all the time <laughs> All the time. And, like, that was also part of the thing was, like, I'm, like, a big guy. And then, like, lose 30 pounds and come back. I mean, like, people would say, like, really horrible, horrible things. And then, like, you would, like, walk out of there and you just kind of, like, pretzel or gymnastics your spirit to kind of, like, keep going. And it was hard. It was, like... It was hard. So I was doing the, doing the open calls. I was doing all of that stuff. And oh my God, I remember <laughs> there was an audition. It was like a theater company somewhere in, 
I think it was DC, and they were doing a call for the Oresteia, right? So they're doing wow. the Greeks. And I'm like, I'm classically trained. I yeah. can like, do this thing. And like, great. And um, all black production of the Oresteia. And I'm like, great. Okay, I can do that. And I go to the thing, and they go, okay, so the dance call is starting in 15 minutes. And I'm like, the de- like what, are, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, you'll do the dance call, and if you make it t- through to the dance call, then you'll get to sing, and then after you'll get to read. Like, I came with, like, my whole, like, ready to throw down some, like, Shakespeare. Yeah. Ready to throw, throw down, like, you know, halloo to the heavens and, like, do, the, do all of that. And they were like, no, this is... The all black Oristia. It's the most singingest, dancingest Oristia <laughs> that you're okay. ever gonna, you know. And so it was just really a disheartening, yeah. disheartening, disheartening time. And then I got a friend of mine was working at an agency and she got them to freelance with me. And at first it was a great thing. I, I got some, you know, appointments rather than having to let go stand yeah. in line and and I booked a show at Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. And that got me my equity card. And Kenneth Roberson, to this day, I'm so grateful for him because he was like, I like you, kid. And he would always call me baby boy. He's like, baby boy, there's something about you I like. And he cast me in the show and I got my equity card. And I was like, okay, great. Yeah. And then I came back to the city and I was doing this festival show. And I got the agent to come and see it. And I killed it. I killed it. I was brilliant in this thing. I remember having this dinner with him after, after the performance. And he, he basically asked me to give him sexual favor. And, and I kind of laughed it off. And I said, oh, you've had a little too much to drink. I remember getting him into a cab. And that was the last time I ever heard from that agent. I am so sorry. Well, here's the thing. I mean, like, had that happened to John Andrew now, it would have been a whole different thing. Yes. But as, like, a young person who didn't really have their voice or didn't have their, like, their feet fully underneath them, and, like, it really just sent me reeling. And I was already, like, I don't want to be going to these open calls anymore for these shows where they don't want me anyway. Right? Like, what I am and what I bring to the table they don't want. And there was evidence of that, right? Like, I mean, I'd been going and going and going and hearing things and, like, not getting cast. And and so a friend of mine introduced me to this man at La Mama, and that became my safe haven. And actually the thing that kind of kept me in the game. That friend also introduced me to people at another place called Manhattan Theater Source. I ended up working with a composing team there and would do these small little musicals with them at this little 50-seat theater, like, right off Washington Square Park. And it just felt safe and wonderful. And And the mamas are great. Like, they've been around the experimental stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, people don't talk about some of those smaller theaters. And so, you know, I could, like run from stuff at La Mama to over to Manhattan Theater Source and and it became a very safe, wonderful thing. And so really to support myself I had corporate jobs. Mm. And the thing that that was um interesting was like I ended up being really good at these corporate jobs and started to like get promotions at these jobs and like work up the 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 ladder in these jobs and 
And I kept this creative life going because I would do it after work. You know, I would work nine to five and, and then I'd go do rehearsals for whatever show I was doing at Manhattan Theatre Source or the things that I did at La Mama. I, I was a part of this reading series for years and we always rehearsed on a Sunday and then Monday evenings was when we would do the readings. And so I would work nine to five and then I'd like go do these readings of these like weird, wackadoo <laughs> experimental plays that you're like, what is happening? Like, what is this play about? But the thing that was great about doing them and this man, George Ferentz, who eventually became a mentor to me. He would go, I don't care about your technique or how you do it because all y'all actors have a different technique. But what, what you keep proving to me is that you can deliver. And I don't know how you're doing what you're doing, but I like that you can do this thing. I would get these calls from George and be like, can you be the head of the Afghan secret police? And I'm like, I don't know, George, can I? And he's like, you can do anything. And he would always say that to me. He'd be always like, you can do anything. And like to have someone in your corner who was just always like, you can do anything. Yeah. You know, was always great. And so for 15 years, I worked with him at La Mama and we did like all of these like readings and small plays. And, you know, he'd have these conversations with me and he's like, yeah, you can have a, you can have a, corporate career but you're an artist kid you know he's, he was always like you're what you are as an artist yeah and like i get it but like, new york is expensive yeah. it's hard sometimes yeah. you have you have to you know yeah in order to like pay your rent and and some people get lost in that yeah absolutely i mean because also i mean at the end of the day it's easier like you're not being rejected several times a week yeah if not several times a day yeah to your face true you know you have to develop this skin where you're like okay don't take it personally but it is it is personal personal. i mean like i've done the smart thing of being on the other side of the casting table Mm. you know i've been a reader i also directed a show once and was on the other side of the table and i was like oh now i get it because like you've cast one person and you're like oh you're great but you're not going to read well with that person you know like or in my mind you're going to look on together and it has nothing really to do with this person's talent or it's you know it's it's a matter of like fitting the puzzle pieces but it still is painful it still is painful so now and they're trying to make the world more woke equitable and inclusive and, and yeah, yeah, yeah and i know the topic of race and theater is is very hot and people are interested and i know i'm interested do you think black knives matter do you think changes are happening or do you think a lot of it is bells and whistles and it's going to take years i mean i mean i think it's going to take years so i think several things are happening right you know we were in a lockdown and a movement came to a head it wasn't it wasn't like people before the pandemic weren't going, hey, things aren't fair. They were. But George Floyd's death and like the visual of that and seeing that and people being at home and that being played over and over again made people question some things about their conscience, consciousness and how they're living and, oh. and all of that stuff, right? So I think all of that happened, but also we're in a pandemic, right? So then the, the We See You movement happened and there was a call to action to change things. But also there was a call to action in the middle of a time when we were all at home. 
home. Yeah. Right? Like we were we were all at home. And so now I think there's this tension that we're bucking up against where these institutions and commercial theater are trying, they're trying very hard to be inclusive. They're trying hard to make those changes. But at the same time, the economics of a post-COVID theater, half the audience is coming back. You know, there was something that just came out about like the summer season in New York, where before COVID it was something like 14 million people visited, and this summer it was 4 million. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, so it's like there really is this economics of the numbers aren't there for what theater was. And I think producers are scrambling to figure that out alongside with this demand that you need to do better. But their asses are still burning. Yeah. Right? Like their asses were just on fire for two years from COVID. And now, you know, maybe the it's not on inflamed anymore, but it's still stinging. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so they're trying to figure that out with this whole thing of, well, now there are no mass mandates in the theater. And you drastically saw the audience drop off when that happened. You did. Right? Like you notice, okay, so there were people who were coming, they felt safe when there was that. And now that there's no mat, oh, well, okay. So what does that mean? The reality of like COVID being just expensive, right? So like if you have your lighting team and half of them get COVID, you have to bring in subs. So then your payroll doubles. And that's across every department in the theater, right? So it's from acting all the way to the ushers to all, I mean, like yeah. the whole thing. So like COVID has made things very expensive. You're also dealing with the fact that less people are coming. Nobody knows what the answer is to that. Yeah, You know, while also they're trying to be inclusive and woke but also they're used to doing theater in a particular way and they're being asked to do it in a different way and so i don't know what the answer is i don't know you know i feel like it's we just have to keep having the conversation but i feel like the change is going to be so much slower Mm. than we want it to be, the dial is going to move. There are some things that have changed, right? So for our Broadway show, we didn't do 10 out of 12s at Tech. That's new. Yeah. Like we were we were done by 8 o'clock every night for a Tech. That's something new. Yes. I mean, I, I don't know that every show is still doing that or... Yeah. We got the Tech schedule and we're like, we're done at 8. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, what? Yes. I have my whole evening to go home yes. and then come back in at 10. Wow. Yeah. You know, so like that is something that happened. I don't know how it's going to change. I mean, we're seeing it, right? Like there's an all black death of a salesman. That's pretty damn exciting. Absolutely. You know, there are more opportunities and more shows with black artists. You know, we have the piano lesson, Ain't No Mo is about to um, come in our show. I mean, before the pandemic and before we were a hit off Broadway in 2019 and no Broadway theater would touch us. And it wasn't until the pandemic, it was during the lockdown that Michael won the Pulitzer. And then it was like, oh, well, this little weird black gay show won the Pulitzer. Maybe, you know. But after our run concluded in 2019, 
that was it. Like we were, we were all like, okay, I guess we're done. Wow. Yeah. So you and I actually know each other from a completely mm-hmm. different community. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and what's fun is that you're so well liked that I, I heard about Strange Loop through this community. Uh-huh. People are like, oh my God, Jana, he's doing this. And it's such a supported group, but we know each other from Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love the fact of like having no idea what your other struggle is, but knowing just like you did that struggle and this struggle and Strange Loop came into your life. That's remarkable that no matter sometimes what turns you take, you're gonna end up where you're supposed to be. My sobriety and Strange Loop are so wrapped together. Because by the time I got sober, I really was not... I'd given up on, like, auditioning and da 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 I was doing the things that I was doing. And I hit my bottom in 2017 and kind of, like, dragged along until I came in to the rooms. So I got sober. And then what people don't know about the rooms is, like, it's a big community. And so in New York... Of course, a lot of people in the sober community are performers. That year, another fellow who was at the Rainbow Room was writing the sober show for that year, which was called Liquor Shop of Horrors. <laughs> and he said, you should come and audition. And I was like, okay, so I auditioned for the thing and I got a nice part in it. And here I was like working with like really, really great people. We put up this incredible show and it just felt like that was possible for me and it was possible to do it sober and it was possible to do it with joy that community got me back into performing also realizing that performing was something that was possible for me sober and also that year was the first time i ever sang periodically so i got sober in february and october of that year michael was doing a cabaret at Ars Nova, and he asked me to sing this song periodically, which is a song that I now sing in the show um, eight times a week. Oh, wow. Um, So at the time, Michael was very shy, and he had written these, like, incredibly personal songs. And if you know anything about his writing style, all of his songs are very personal. And so we were doing this cabaret that he called the Dirty Laundry Cabaret, and he kind of was, like, very shy about speaking. And so he asked me to read these transcripts of voicemails of his mom at the side of the stage as interstitials between the songs. And then he gave me periodically to sing. And I remember thinking, my God, this, this is probably the most amazing song I've ever heard. <laughs> like, this, like yeah. what is this song? Yeah, so that's how it began. I mean, so in a way, like, becoming sober and, like, my sober journey. And then I, I became very involved with, like, the sober shows and like the roundup shows and slowly but surely came into being human and being decent and you know yeah there are all kinds of things we learn in yes, that program we do. yes and there are all kinds of things that they hold us accountable to in that program and if you're willing to it really it really changes their life and so as my life changed my attitude towards acting and everything changed and and by that time, George's run at La Mama was coming to an end. Mm-hmm. Then Manhattan Theater Source closed down. And so I was like, okay. Michael would call me every once in a while, like, come sing periodically at this thing or come sing periodically at that thing. Was kind of like, all right, I have a creative outlet in sobriety. I'm really good at my 
Now I'd started a new corporate job. That also happened the year I got sober. Mm. I started this new job the year I got sober. Like the universe is very interesting. And 2008, it turns out, was a really good year. This job was corporate leadership training using the tools of the performing arts to help like scientists and executives yeah. be better at what they do. And so I was working this corporate job where literally in the center of this office was a black box theater. All of a sudden I had this place where like I could rehearse things. We rehearsed the sober show there. Cool. I did a musical off off Broadway at Manhattan Theater Service. We rehearsed it there. Like I had free rehearsal space. I had like so all of a sudden it was like I was getting back into this creative flow of like, okay, I can be an artist and I can I was rehearsing things for La Mama and for George there. I mean, it was like incredible to have this space. And my boss there, this guy Gifford, just loved that I was like this creative guy. You know, I kind of was like, hey, it's fine. I think, I think I'm ready to give up this equity card. I've never gotten health insurance weeks from equity. Yeah. And, you know, I've been like an equity actor now for like all of these years. And like, I guess that's not what the universe wants for me, but... I'm grateful, I'm happy, and I, I have this community, I still have a creative community. I'll do small little things here and there, but I'm gonna give up the idea of like being on Broadway or like give up the idea of like really being a working actor. And I remember speaking to a friend of mine who was also in the program and saying, I think, I think this is where my head and my heart are. And he's like, that's fine, that's great. If your head and your heart are telling me that, do that. You don't have to act. And I was like, you're right. And so uh, literally, good in my heart and my spirit about giving it up. I, I tell the story and it's it, like, it, it's, you know what we say, we plan and God laughs. Like literally two days later, two days later, I get a call from a corporal casting. I, I had not auditioned for them for 15 plus years. Wow. Literally. Wow. Out of the blue, I get a call from a court for casting and they go, do you know how to do a Jamaican accent? <laughs> Just so happens I have one in my back pocket. And it's a real one. <laughs> yeah. And so I ended up in this workshop for this Bob Marley musical. And at the end of the, the workshop, the director came up to me and he's like, so I'd like to invite you to come and actually do the show. And gave me all the details and da 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 And I was like, oh, okay. We later on did another workshop in, in the city. And it was like, Claire, okay, this thing is actually going to go to production, you know. And then an offer came. And I was at my job, this, this job, and I, and I went to my boss and I went, hey, so this thing happened. So, and it's in Baltimore. If you don't want me to take it, I won't take it. I'm like, I understand that, you know. So I was like putting everything in the way for this not to happen. And literally at the end of the day, my boss and the chief of staff came to my door and they're like, well, there's this thing, you can work remotely, right? Like you, we'll just give you a laptop. You go down there, you like do the thing and, the, and maybe if we like adjust your hours so like you can still get your health insurance. And stuff. Like they came up with the solution. Like I was like, 
no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> and they're like, no, you're going to Baltimore. Yes. And so I ended up in Baltimore. And at the time, it was the biggest show I'd ever done. It was the most money I'd ever made to act. All of a sudden, I was in the show with like a turntable and automated set pieces and like a full band and a hundred piece like sound mixing board. I mean, it was like a big ass show. This isn't a little 50 seat yeah. theater. Yes. Like, I'm like in a real, real thing. And I was working with like incredible people. This woman, Sekhan Sembla, I talk about her all the time, and Susan Kalechi Watson and Michael Kilgore and Michael Lewoye. Like, there were like all of these like people who were just so brilliantly talented and just incredible. And I was like, oh wow, I'm one of them. And yes. I'm, and I'm here doing the thing and pretty good at what I'm doing. And I loved it. I loved every moment of it. I came back to the city and was back at my job. And it was clear that my heart wasn't in it. You know, at the time I was working in business development and like we'd come up with this. It was like a survey thing that I had done. We were sending it out to like this big client and it was going out to something like a hundred people in this organization. And I programmed the thing and I triggered the wrong thing and it sent it out at the wrong time to these people. And so it caused a big clusterfuck. And I ended up on this, you know, oh my God, sobriety, right? Like you have to own your mistakes. I was on this like call with these executives who were not happy and like read me the riot act. And they're like, did you do this? And I have to like go, yeah, I did. Yeah, I had to like own up to all of this stuff. And the reality was, it was just like my head and my heart weren't in it anymore. And I was like, well, I'm getting fired. I cost the company something like, I remember $14,000. Oh my gosh. Yeah, Yeah, it was a $14,000 mistake. And so I was like, okay, I'm fired. I'm like, that's it. I've been very blessed with like wonderful people in my life. And, and this boss, the head of the company, I remember he came. He came to my office. He didn't bring me to his office. He came to my office and he sat with me and he's like, look, so if something happened, right? And we can look at it in one or, or, or two ways, right? We can look at it as a $14,000 mistake, or I can choose to look at it as a $14,000 investment in your future in this company. But you got to make a decision. Mm. Where's your head? He knew exactly. Where's your yeah. heart? Yeah. And I was like, and he's like, okay, that's fine. So we'll figure out how to phase you out. And instead of like firing me on the spot, what he did, him and the chief of staff came up with this beautiful plan. And they phased me out over like a year and a half. So like, they're like okay, so at this date, we'll move you to part-time so you can still get some health insurance weeks so you can still get health insurance at this point in time we'll move you to what we call occasional so you come in one or two days a week they literally like came up with this beautiful plan to like phase me out and then the universe started to go okay let's make you an actor after that happened i got one of the women that i would have lunch with every day it turns out her daughter was an associate artistic director at hartford stage her daughter had put a facebook post going we need a new mr marvel any thoughts any ideas 
for their Christmas Carol, their annual show. And Debbie went, you should hire Charlie Andrew. And so the daughter reached out to me, Rachel. Rachel has now become one of my dearest friends. She's like, so my mom says I should like audition you. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I auditioned and I booked the gig. And like I ended up doing that gig for three years. And it was like the most wonderful community of people. Yeah. A linchpin in my year to be able to like, I know I'm going to get this many health insurance weeks. Yes. And, and so my mindset of like being corporate America and da, 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 shifted to, okay, so I'm now hustling and doing this stuff and da, 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 da. And literally at the same time when that happened, the development process for Strange Loop started to really get hot and really get hot. And so all of a sudden it was like, we're doing workshops every other month or like yeah. every three, you know. We started at this place called Musical Theatre Factory, which was in a gay porn studio. <laughs> it literally was. This woman, Shakina, started it. And she's like, well, I need space. And apparently her childhood best friend ran a gay porn company in New York and she was out to dinner with, with him. And she's like hey, I need to do this thing. And he's like, well, I have the space where I shoot gay porn. I don't always. Right. So if you want to build something in there, you can. And so literally she came and she built curtains. And like you first walked in, you would never know. Yeah. But once you were performing there and like you went through the curtain, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> like it was literally a working yeah. gay porn studio. And so that became a whole other community. Like, so Joe Iconis was a part of that. And Michael was a part of that. I'm trying to remember some of the other people who who were, but it was like a, a community of composers and performers and really, really great stuff was starting to come out of there. And then they moved from there to Playwrights Horizons downtown, okay. to the Playwrights Horizons downtown studios. And all of a sudden, like, you know, people from Playwrights were kind of like going, what's this show, you know? And so that's how we ended up at Playwrights Horizons. So you've been there from the creative process from the beginning. For Strange Loop, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I love what you said earlier, the stuff that he would have you read mm -hmm. in between ended up you creating and that becoming your role in many In sense. a way, yes. in a way. So we started at Ars Nova with that cabaret. But then Michael, he would always like self-produce these things all around. So we're doing things at Joe's Pub, we were doing, I mean, all, you name it, Cornelia Street Cafe. You remember that, like, little Cornelia I Street do, Cafe? Yeah. I mean, we were doing things all over the place. And he would always ask me to come and sing periodically. That was the thing. He's like, yes, I'm doing this show. I mean, there were, like, shows where, like, the only thing I would sing was periodically. He's like, I just want you to sing periodically. Okay, okay. Which is the song in your show that's also playing his mother. Yeah, yes. Which is awesome. Yeah. I love that the, the show set up where the other characters are all parts of his mind and his body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, his thoughts. His thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, now that I understand the concept of the strange loop, like, that's happening constantly in my head yeah. at all times. Yeah. And it's just like, then you get, sometimes you get to the end and you're like, okay, I need to go into a different loop. It's going to be just as strange. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, at points in the show, we all of his thoughts, all of us collectively play his mom, all of us collectively mm. play his dad. We play like villainous people from like dating apps. We play his agent. We play his doctor. And then we also play like things like his self-loathing, his sexual ambivalence. There's a thought that's about, are you black enough? You know, um, so all of those things are, are in there as this black gay boy who's kind of like struggling to go, well... Am I black enough? I'm gay, but 
I'm not the ideal, my body's fat, but da 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 and I have all these self-doubts that tell yeah. me I'm not good enough or not, you know, so it's a wild show. And how long <laughs> was the process to get it to Broadway? So the version of the show that you're kind of like seeing now, that took about, I would say about five years, five, six years before we we premiered at Playwrights Horizons. Oh. But there was a whole other series of processes before that. Maria Goyanes, who's now the artistic director at Woolly Mammoth, I remember the first time I did a thing that was called A Strange Loop. She was the director, and it was cast very differently. So there was like a white woman in it, and a, it was a very different show. Usher was thin and beautiful. Oh. Yeah. It was a completely different show. It wasn't about thoughts in his head. It was still about him being this writer who's trying to make things happen. But it was like a completely different thing. And so we workshopped that a couple times, like many, many years ago. And then there was a whole other process that I was shooting a movie at the time. Some friends of mine from undergrad wrote a movie and they got funding to do it in Maine. We spent three weeks or something like that. We spent a certain amount of weeks in Maine, like where he grew up um, shooting this movie. And I took vacation and I went and I did it. And so I missed that one. And then when Stephen came on board, he kept questioning Michael about, why do you have John Andrew play this part? And Michael was like, I just like how he sings the song. Like, it was like literally the most simple answer. He yeah. was like, I just like what he's doing with the thing. Yeah. And Stephen kept going, but what is that? Like, what are you doing with that? And he said, I don't know. I just like it. And it was Stephen Brackett, the director, who said, well, what if instead of casting it how we're casting it, what if the entire thing was peopled with black gay men? The visual of the show is all black gay men playing all of these different things. And when that happened, something kind of switched. Like it switched for Michael in terms of how he was going to write and structure this piece. And it was clear. I remember, I remember the first time we read that it was like, whoa, something kind of went with that. From that idea, to playwrights with about five, six years of wow. developing that. Because I love that that's the concept. Okay. So how has your life changed since A Strange Loop, since the Tony Awards, the Tony nomination, how all of that? I, you know, I mean, like, I, I don't know yet. Okay. Because we're still coming out of this pandemic, right? So I'll tell you how my life changed. <laughs> 2019, we do the show Off-Broadway. The show is a hit Off-Broadway. All of a sudden, like, directors and people who have, I've admired are showing up in our lobby. I'm walking out of the lobby and Alicia Silverstone comes up and hugs me. And, like, Michael Greif comes and he gives me a hug and, like, there is James Franco. The day Joanna Gleason showed up, I was like, <laughs> oh my God, like what is happening? Right, so like all of a sudden, mm. like I'm in this show where like people that I admire or people who I've like seen in these things and I'm like, oh, you're doing this amazing thing are saying nice things to me about me, right? And that's amazing. And in this weird career that I've had, like I worked with Michael Greif 
when I was a student at La Jolla Playhouse. He was the artistic director at the time. And I haven't worked with him since then. And so here he is, he's at the show, and he literally offered me a Broadway show. That's amazing. So Yeah, that's amazing. So like, so the notebook, the notebook which is in Chicago right now, yeah. he was developing the notebook and he's like, look, we're going to do this thing, we're going to do it out of town, but like, I'd love for you to come and be a part of this thing, right? So I get a call from my agent and like, oh, Michael Graff wants you to come do this thing. I've never been offered, like, offered yeah. something like that before in my life. Never. Never. That is so awesome. Right? Yeah. So things like that were happening. And then I got an incredible agent out of it. Like, I had a really shitty agent. But I got an incredible agent out of it. And then, uh, you know, the beginning of 2020, I did probably the most fabulous play, Blues for an Alabama Sky. I loved doing this play. It was fantastic. I was great in it. So it started to feel like things were like building and things were happening. And then the shutdown happened and it was like, okay, well, I don't know. Yeah. And it wasn't until we were deep in the shutdown that like Michael won the Pulitzer, then I won a Lortel Award for Strange Love, and then we all won the Obie Award. The entire cast won an Obie Award and the creative team for Strange Loop. And then I want an outer critic circle for this play that I did. And so all of a sudden, all of these things were happening, but it was happening on Zoom. It was like all happening on like this thing. And then my mom had a stroke, which was like a very life-changing thing for my entire family. And you went back to Jamaica. And I went back to Jamaica for about six months to be her primary caregiver. And so as we're coming out of the pandemic, I moved into this place and then they're like, all right, we think we're going to dip our toe back into making theater. And it was either I was going to be doing Strange Loop or The Notebook. And then they were like, okay, we're going to go to Willy Mammoth. And it was supposed to end um, January of this year. I literally would have come home for two weeks and then go to Chicago to start with The Notebook. And while we were in DC, that was when they were like, We're going to Broadway, and my brilliant agents were like, that's great, you're still doing The Notebook. And I'm like, okay, and they're like, not until you get a theater do we pull you from this thing. Oh, wow, yeah. And I was like, okay. So, like, it was still neck and neck, neck and neck, neck and neck, neck and neck about, am I going to do strange rumor I'm going to do and then they announced the theater and then my agents were like we're pulling you from the notebook and then the notebook postponed so there was like well you think we could do it later like I could do the notebook later and then my agents were like we don't know how this is going to play out. So maybe let the no- notebook go. I think my agents were like, they believed that I would get a nomination. I think so. I think they were like, this part, what you're doing, like what you get to do is such a showcase that there's potential that that might happen. And so they were like, well, let's let the notebook go because you might be in a... Yeah. I remember my, yeah, my, my agent chairman was like, you might be in a different position at that point in time. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Okay. Like, in my mind, I'm like, no, like, keep me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's a, like, a, a risky show versus, like, yeah, a, like, I'm a like, show that people know the name to. They know the name, and it's Michael Greif. He's, like, 
yeah. many shows has he had on Broadway? Like, he's gonna get a theater. Like, you know what I mean? Right. Like, in my yes. mind, I'm like, he's gonna get a theater. I don't know that Steven yeah. Shuka's gonna get a theater. But it's too black, it's too queer. But anyway, it all worked out for the best. And so deserving. And I'm glad those agents kept you in that. I mean, and then, you know, like, it was weird. Like, we're, like, doing this Broadway show and rehearsing this thing in the middle of a pandemic oh. and, like, dates changing and-, and with masks. And we're like, we have to open by, by whatever the date was in April to be eligible for the Tony. Oh, right. And so, and then people were getting COVID and we're like, oh my God. Like, it was really a very yeah. pressured situation. And then we opened and literally two days later, the Broadway League was like, we're extending the thing for the... Oh. And then we've been <laughs> like, rushing and... We're like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, literally two days after, they're uh, like, we have decided to uh, extend the thing. We're like, oh my God. And that reminds me when I saw it because you were saying that most of everyone in your company was making their Broadway debuts. Yeah, yeah. So the company management was like, we need to have a yeah. Tony, Tony 101 party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, so they did two really wonderful things. Our management company uh, manages a little show called Wicked. So they oh. know what they're doing. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. And when they realized that like so many of us were making our Broadway debuts, the third day of rehearsal, they cut the rehearsal short. And we just had a half day rehearsal that day. And they literally brought us to their offices in a big conference room. And we all sat around this big conference table. They literally had everybody. So they were like, these are the people who are your advertising agents. And this is this person. And this is this person. And this is how Broadway works. If you need this, this is where you go for that. And this, I mean, they literally sat us down and like, you know, full on PowerPoint presentation of like, this you is how Broadway if, works. Can you imagine if right? companies did that? Yeah. So, I mean... Yeah. Like, I guess in terms of, like, change, that's another change, right? They kind of were like, let's clue you into the business. And so then when our show opened and we got those reviews, I mean, like, we got, like, these incredible reviews. And then, like, a couple days later, they're like, hey, we're going to do a Tony's. Because, like, when you get reviews like that, chances are, you know, they basically said... So after the nominations come out, if you get a nomination, your life is not yours for the next 40 days. And they're like, what? And they weren't lying. <laughs> they yeah. were not lying. They were not lying. And you have to do all of that extra stuff and your and show. And then you have to do the show. And it's COVID. And it's COVID. And you sing. Yeah. You, you know, it's just so much. Yeah. So the nominations came out. And then the next day was the meet and greet. And so there's like this thing called the meet and greet. And like, you're like, oh, okay, that's wonderful. And so you go and like you get your nomination pin. It's wonderful. Like you go to this hotel and they have these big giant Tony Awards that you like do these photo things around and it's like really kind of fabulous and it's at this hotel and then you go into this ballroom and you realize that you're in the biggest press junket you've ever been in your entire life. And you literally go from cube to cube to cube to cube to cube to cube to cube. And it's like, okay, so this is the Hollywood Reporter. How, hey, how does it feel to be nominated for a Tony? This is Entertainment Weekly. Hey, how do you feel for that? Oh, it's great. This is New York Times. Like, da, 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 da. This is NBC. This is ABC. This is da, 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 da. It was like a huge conference room. A ballroom. A ballroom. You walked in there and I was like, this is the meet and greet. Like, and they were like, you know, I remember the PR people were like, oh, there's food at the thing like there was no time to eat anything <laughs> because like in my mind i was like oh okay it's gonna be this very yeah no honey it was like the biggest press junket and the pressure for us that day was that same day when the meet and greet was happening 
we were also filming Late Night with Seth Meyers. So we literally had to show up very, very early to this thing. Oh my God, God bless him. I showed up with my backpack. <laughs> I had on a suit jacket, but like I had my backpack. And literally this guy, Wayne, who was part of the press team, he literally grabbed it off my back and he like rushed me through this thing because he's like, we have to get you out of here by this time because you have to go to the sound check at Seth Meyers. And so literally he would be like, he would stand outside of the interview and I'm in there and say, you gotta stop. And he would like drive me to the next one and drive me to the the next one. In that same space, there was one thing that was like a large step and repeat. And then there was a whole room that was just CBS because CBS is the broadcast partner for the Tonys. And so like he literally like did all of that and then they rushed us out and we got to the street and Wayne was like, run! And we literally ran from the Safatel Hotel all the way up to Rockefeller Center uh. to do the sound check. I mean, it was like a day. Like my phone just blew up. Like my phone got hot in my hand from people like texting and calling. And then like maybe a day or two days later was this event. It was off to the races for the next 40 days. Uh, yeah. And how was it performing on the Tony Awards? You've done it. Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's great. Oh, definitely. It's so great. There's something about the curtain coming up and 6,000 people. Yeah. That was, like, really exciting. To celebrate theater. That's to celebrate theater. So the energy is just different. It's a different pressure. Yeah. Because everyone's there to celebrate. Yeah. That. And even though, you know, like, it's going out to, like, a few million people... There's something joyous and like you end up like meeting all of your heroes. Yes. Like, I mean, you worked with Bernadette Peters, but I don't know. In the rehearsal period, she was either right after us or right before us. But what it meant was like in the rehearsal thing, we were backstage with freaking Bernadette yes. Peters. Oh, that's what she- and she was like, she couldn't have been like any sweeter. Oh my God! Like the whole time, like eighteen-year-old John Andrew, who like had the videotape for Into the Woods on repeat, was like, "Oh my God!" I'm like standing next to Bernard oh, Peters, yeah. right? That was just exciting to be like in this room. Then the thing about the Tonys, like the Tony luncheon, I was just like. Oh my god, oh, oh my god, like there's Mary and there's this <laughs> person and there's that person and you know, there are all of these people that you just kinda admire and they're just all in this room eating salad. And it's like amazing, you oh. know. I stepped on Jason Robert Brown's foot. I was like, Oh my god and I turned around and I'm like, I'm so sorry and he's like, Well I have another one and I was like, Oh my god, I but performing on the Tonys was like that was wonderful. The rest of the night and the week leading up was probably the most stressful mm. ever in my life because where my category was in the show, like right after we were doing our performance, so they set me up to change right off stage in one of those dressing rooms. But the rest of my cast went up to the ninth floor to change. And so I'm sitting there in the thing and like watching the Tony Awards, nervous, just like rubbing my hands raw. A stage manager comes up to me and she goes, come on, get up, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta go. And so I get up and I follow her out. They bring me backstage and they're about to put me in an elevator to send me up to the ninth floor. And then all of a sudden, two other stage managers are running towards me and they're like, no, get him back out there, get him back out there, get him back out there. So she had taken up the rest of the cast and she's like, wait, there's one thing missing. And I guess nobody told her that I was changing there. So as these two other ones are running out, the dresser from the show just happened to be at the door and he's like, no, 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 I have this costume here. Here, 
And so they rush me literally back out to my chair. They sit me down and literally, literally this is what happened there and I, and we're back in five, four, three, two, one. The category for best supporting actor in a musical. <laughs> I literally sat back there and I was like, what just happened? And then they're like, and now, here to announce the category for this thing. And I was like, oh my God. And there was a director that I had, David Stoller, this director that I knew, happened to be sitting on my road right next to me. And he saw it all go down and the thing was about to start. And he literally leaned over and he went, breathe. And I went, <sighs> yeah. So like the whole night was stressful. Yeah. And then I, like literally Matt Doyle won it and the cameras like turned from me and turned there and a stage manager dragged me up and they put me back in the thing and I was just like this and the dresser was like, it's okay, you're okay, you're all right, just take a breath, just take a breath and like calmly changed me into the costume and then got me onto the stage deck and then I saw everybody then it was fun and we were all backstage when Michael won his Tony so oh. we didn't we didn't get to see him win and we didn't get to hear his speech mm. because you know that place is cavernous. cavernous like you can't hear anything no and you lose people like that was the weirdest thing was like we were on stage and like we couldn't hear each other and like we didn't have in-ears I didn't have an in-ear about three people in our performance had in-ears but I didn't have one so I literally could only hear the playback, but our harmonies are so tight that I usually like rely oh. on listening to other people. Yeah, and like I couldn't, so I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> singing, I'm like, yep. hoping, oh, for the hoping for the best. Oh my God. Uh, so tell me about this, is it a hashtag that's F-A-T-G black with, you are loved? Do you know this hashtag? I thought I saw it in a program or something like that. Oh, me, yeah. That's a lyric from the show, which is for all those gay black boys who chose to turn their back on the Lord, which is the thing that we say in memory song. So Broadway debut, we get our program count and they were like, you get 70 words. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not going to make it be about. And I was in this production at this theater. Like, I want to thank people. There are people yeah. that I need to thank. And there's a reason that this show means so much to me that resonates with me every night for all those gay black boys who chose to turn their back on the Lord you are loved you are loved I love that that's why I like yeah. wrote it down I was like I know I wrote this down six months ago but there's a reason I wanted to ask about it yeah and I'm yeah. glad I did so of all of everything that's gone, going on in your life that we haven't talked about is there a moment that you're just really proud of look I didn't think that our show would make it to a stage much less Broadway right Right. And so the thing that the core group of us who have been doing it for a while, we're like, we know how to do this show behind a music stand in a studio. Yeah. And so they're like, no, we're actually putting it up. We're like, <laughs> I remember James going, so do we keep the music stand? <laughs> how are we going to do the show with the music stand? Because like for years, we've done every reading workshop imaginable behind music yeah. stands. And so the fact that we just got it to a stage, 
and then to Broadway is thrilling enough. You know, it's sad that we're we're going to close in January, but I'm so proud that we were able to. Not many people get to open a show on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of things that feel like rarefied air. To be in the original company of a Broadway musical feels like rarefied air. Yeah. To be a Tony nominee feels like rarefied air, and I don't take it lightly. I just don't know what all of that means yet. I remember the morning of the meet and greet, we do that thing, and it was on our day off, so it was like on a Monday. So we do this whole meet and greet thing, we do the whole Seth Meyers thing, and I literally, it was like maybe five or so, and I go on the subway, and of course it's rush hour, and I couldn't get a seat. I remember laughing to myself going, well, look at this Tony nominee not getting a seat. (laughs) And for the rest of the world, it's like, you're just a person on the train. I'm not going to walk on the subway and they're going to go, oh, there's Tony nominee. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Yeah. Like, people are still in their own movie and people are still like, yeah. I'm just trying to get home. I don't know how it's changed my career yet. What I do know is that this show has given me a career that I thought would never happen like from doing this show i've met amazing directors and met amazing people and got that offer to do this amazing thing we're just so in the treadmill of doing the show yeah i don't know i don't know what it's going to look like you deserved everything the show is great (laughs) and more people need to be exposed to stories that maybe they aren't related to and that they can invest in people need to be exposed to new work so there's so many things to be proud of like this little weird frank show this oddity made it to broadway yeah on our marquee it says a big black queer ass American Broadway show. That's on your marquee? It's on our marquee. And in a time when like laws are being like, don't say gay laws are being passed, stupid crap like that. Just the fact that we existed or we exist right now is awesome. Yep. It's awesome. If there is a song that pops into your head right now that brings you joy or that represents you, what you're going through, what would it be to be your play out song? The one that just comes to me is Dream a Little Dream. Dream a little dream of me. Yes. It's sometimes a song that when I'm on FaceTime with my mom at night, I might sing a little bit of it to her. And it's nice to be able to dream a little dream. When I was a young theater student, I dreamed of being on Broadway and then I let go of that dream. And it's nice to be able to live a dream. There's so much that I'm like, I don't, I don't know. But I got to have that. Yeah. I got to live that dream, and I will see. Oh, well, thank you so much for this amazing interview. I know you have a show tonight. You're just a joy as a person. <laughs> and so I'm happy for people and their success. Yeah. And it's like it just shows you're happy for good people. Yeah. You know, and that's and that doesn't happen in the show business all the time. <laughs> you know, people, it doesn't people, happen. People aren't all, yeah, sometimes people aren't happy for other people. This is true. So I'm very happy for you, and I'm excited to, to see where you go with this. You know, our little program teaches a, a thing that I wish more people would learn which is principles before personality yep. and unfortunately sometimes in our business it is personality before principles yes. but principles before personality it's an easier way of yes. being in this world thank you especially in show business yeah sometimes like let it go <laughs> well, thank you very much this was thank awesome you. thank you and now to sing this lovely bell here is Mama Cass
seem to whisper I love you Birds singing in the sycamore tree Dream a little dream of me Say nighty night and kiss me Just hold me tight and tell me you'll miss me While I'm alone and blue as can be Whatever 